welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined, uh, I am not joined in my car, but I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh, also from their self-isolation. Heidi, Tim, how's it going? It's David, great. I'd like never... to tell a story about your car, but go ahead, Tim. No, 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 you, you go, Heidi, you go. <laughs> you want to tell a story about my car? Well, because every single time... You mentioned your car, which isn't that often, but sometimes you're like, got in my car and drove to work or whatever. Then I always remember that it was you in your car that introduced me to Conan O'Brien's Needs a Friend, which is one of my oh, favorite podcast? podcasts yeah. ever. I love that <laughs> podcast. And Scott and I talk about it all the time and we listen to it together. And it was all because you drove me to Groundworks, which is a great cop yeah, shop. Everyone should yeah. go there. So anyway, that's what I always think of when I think of your car. Well, I don't own that car anymore, but yeah. Oh, well, that's sad. Never mind. It's a different car. <laughs> no, it's not. That car was a piece of junk. <laughs> it's a very different so, story than Tim's, Tim's story about his car that he told many moons ago. The hot box story? Oh, man. Yeah. 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 The hot box story. Yeah. That story lives on. That story really lives on. That's the gift that keeps on giving. Yep. Tim, how are you? <laughs> I'm good, David. I feel like for one of the first times in my life, my living situation is actually spacious compared to yours. Well, let me clarify. I'm not living in my car. Oh, <laughs> I thought you had kind of moved under a bridge. had taken a sleeping bag. <laughs> no. Rumors, rumors are being started right now. <laughs> exactly. Your I, wife is like, we can't have the risk. We can't have the risk. You got to get out, David. <laughs> oh, so I'm not. I'm not living in a car. In your scenario, I'm not living in the car with my family. In my Camry with my four kids and wife, I'm living in there by myself to, to save. Right. Right. To save exactly. My to kids yes. from the threat of. Yeah. You know. No, that that's not implausible, I suppose, but it's not the facts. So. I'm just in the car right now because I do have four children in a not very big house and it's loud. So okay. I, I banished myself to the, uh, to the car because somehow that was going to be better audio quality than, uh, than being in my bedroom. It actually um, is good audio quality. Well, I'm sitting here. I, I'm sitting here, um, on my phone and I'm, talking about a great book with you guys. So I, that, it's a good distraction from everything that's going on. And we've heard from a lot of people who, who agreed, I think, that this was a providential providential timing to be reading Anne of Green Gables right now with everything that's going on in the world. Uh, luckily, we didn't choose the plague. Uh, can't lose the plague for, for March of 2020. But um, we are here to talk about chapters 13 through 16 of Anne of Green Gables, and we'll do that in just a second. I want to remind you how you can join the conversation. You can, of course, do that by heading over to Facebook and typing in Close Reads discussion group or just Close Reads in that search bar and you'll find our, our group there. You can join the conversation. There's been lots of chatter going on there, especially about, about the uh, the current literary bracket. We're down to eight couples in our classic couples clash uh, literature bracket. So you can go vote on that. And uh, you can also follow along uh, on Instagram at Close Reads Pods. And you can uh, subscribe to our newsletter, which is closereads.substack.com. And uh, of course, we have our Patreon page as well. We are in the midst of discussing Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky's a great novel, as some bonus episodes for the uh, Patreon supporters. So if you'd like to be a part of that, you can head over to patreon.com slash closereads, get access to those episodes, as well as some other great content, including some sweet show swag. All right, let's talk about Anne of Green Gables chapters 13 through 16. We get a little bit of uh, a little bit more conflict, I guess, in this section. We get we get more heartbreak. Anne, Anne is always on the verge of heartbreak, and <laughs> I was thinking we could have a debate about parenting if you want. Ooh, <laughs> go on. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just I was just I was uh, I was lying in bed last night reading, and Bethany was reading Hannah Coulter or something, and I keep running across these lines from the way Marilla was dealing with Anne. When you know, when, like when she thought that she had stolen the brooch and all those different things, and I was reading these lines to her, and we were laughing because the differences between her and Matthew are at times, Marilla and Matthew, that is, are at times um, similar to the differences between Bethany and I, especially with our younger kids. So we were laughing about how this book, for whatever reason, really gets at um, some of the. Uh, the humorous aspects of parenting, I guess, but even though it's not humorous when we're living through it sometimes, but I don't really want to have a debate about parenting because that's not why people listen to this podcast. 
I Wait, was wondering so you if- are living in the car by yourself. It's just for reasons that are different than the ones that I read, <laughs> that I that I thought. There's a parenting <laughs> going some on. Social distancing, honey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a direct quote from my wife. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but I was thinking about how it's really interesting. One of the most surprising parts that I hadn't remembered is the way Rachel Lind has some words of wisdom for for Marilla and how the book kind of keeps changing how we're thinking how we think about these characters and what we expect of them and so what whatever whatever prejudices or opinions we had about Rachel Lind at one point are uh, are kind of subverted in that moment we realize there's you know more to her than we thought and I was wondering if that's happened for either of you with any of these other characters because in some ways they kind of can feel you know, a little children's book archetype-ish, if that makes sense. Um, whether it's, you know, the orphan uh, who's looking for a home or the the older woman who maybe is a little bit too hard or, you know, the dashing romantic uh, partner who is probably also a little bit of a conflict <laughs> point for a little while. So I was wondering if, if for you all, you, you had any surprises yeah. that well, as you're reading, you're thinking, man, there's a lot more going on in these characters than what the archetypes might suggest. Tim, what do you think? Well, Marilla has really changed in this section of the book. For me, she, I think at the end of the last section, you know, she's just, she doesn't know what to do with Anne. She's so frustrated at Anne. She just kind of wants Anne to kind of get with the program, do her chores, be quiet, go to school, go to church, do all the right things. And now she's kind of, by the end of this section, she's become, in many ways, Anne's defender. And when somebody accuses Anne, she is much more inclined to come to Anne's defense than she is to piggyback on the accusation. Heidi? Um, I... That's such a hard question for me to answer because of my familiarity with the book. And You've with been the through characters. it so many times. Um, but I think that you're really onto something that she, that Lucy Mon Montgomery is determined that these are ordinary human people, not good guys and bad guys. And so they have their weaknesses and their foibles. And but in relationship with each other, they change themselves and each other and they're constantly forming each other and that's part of the premise of the book there are some characters that we really see only through the eyes of a child like mr phillips who really seems like a pretty bad teacher (laughs) um but and he's not really humanized he kind of stays more of a stock character and that's but that's okay because that's through that the only way we really even know him is through the eyes of Anne. so but for the most part, anybody who has any kind of real presence in the book is human. So what do you, well, what do you mean by is human? Um, I mean that they're not good guys or bad guys. They're just people. They're just like the kinds of people that we, oh, would, right. that we would, you know, meet in the grocery store. Now right. we're, I'm hearing echo and delay. How about now? Okay. Yeah. That's check, check. Yeah. Okay. I had to move my car, so I oh. might've been trying to catch up. Um, David, did you encounter some local street toughs? I know this is on the like hundred hundred adventure outside your car. I'm just gonna figure out to move and see what we find, and I'll just describe to you. Okay, <laughs> great. And then if, if a police officer comes by and says you're supposed to be at home, then I'll uh, go home again. Are you my guys driveway. shelter in um, place? Are you are you supposed to be home at this? Actually, point? no, we're not. Yeah, okay, not yet. We, we expect are it today. Not, so. Oh, you do. Colorado yeah. expects it today. Well, it's already in or the place. nation expects it's already in place in Denver, and so we're expect the rest of the state is expecting a shelter in place order. Hmm. Maybe we can't go for drives. Like you can't drive around in your car at all. I think they're not going to enforce it for people who are, or they're not. It's not necessary to enforce it to people who are just like driving around in their car. But yeah, I mean, I think you can get a ticket. At least in Colorado, in Denver, you can get a ticket for being out of your house if you're not going to the grocery store to get gas or something that's necessary for your life. Mm. Okay. Insane. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so back to... to, um, 
what, where were we? Uh, human characters, people who are real, not just Change. good or bad. Yeah. Transformation, street toughs. Yep. <laughs> Hot boxing. Hot boxing. So you, so you had just said that you were. Um, that they were all pretty. They're all pretty human unless they're okay. All right. So, okay. All right. I'm ready. All right. Okay. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> I gotta get my brain in place together. Gotta, I'm yeah, sure you got yeah. a lot of things going on. Okay. Um, the teacher. What was his name? Mr. Phillips. Mr. Is Phillips. From, yeah. We see him through Anne's through Anne's eyes. And one of the things I like about this novel is the way it kind of deftly, deftly shifts between perspectives and point mm-hmm. of views. And it feels so natural because she's, she's so good at Lucy Maud Montgomery. That is, is so good at capturing kind of what's going on within the heart of each individual character. And I was thinking it's not, you know, sometimes a lot of authors are good at like saying, okay, what did this character see? You know, but in, in terms of point of view, but what makes a really good author is where they can, get into the point of view, you can get into the heart of multiple characters, like into the soul of that character. And so whether we're in, in Anne's, inside Anne's heart or inside Marilla's heart, we get a pretty distinct vision of the world and a pretty distinct uh, sense of the way they think about things and experience things. And I think that's a real, um, a real sign of someone who is really good at what they're doing, if, if, if I can mm. put it that kind mm. of like... If that's kind of an... It's an oversimplified way of putting it, but I think there's I think there's something real skillful about that in this book, the way she does that. I there's something also really skillful about the consistency of Anne, even though Anne is still kind of I don't know that erratic is the right word. She's so energetic and she's like her passions like move with such ferocity, but she's still you know who she is from basically that first wagon ride home. You know who Anne is, and she's remained that character despite her growth. Yeah, the, 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 her deafness at, at portraying Anne's character, both the change and the kind of consistency of character, is one of the real gifts of this book, I think. Do you... Um... Yeah, you know, I was going to ask another question, but now that I'm thinking about it, that does seem like it would be challenging too. Like if you're trying to create this character, because the whole point of her character is how out there she is, right? Like how kind of much organized chaos is in her mind. And so getting that on the page in a way that is is consistent is probably not the... Uh, the easiest thing to do because you could, yeah, it could easily, you could easily become too much at, at, to the point where you like the audience just does not want to be inside her head anymore. And right. Also, but you also have to do enough of the sort of crazy, the crazy uh, mental gymnastics that Anne does where it's just weird enough for her to be a little bit more crazy, shall we say? I'm saying that, you know, in an affectionate way than the average person. Because, <laughs> uh-huh. you, you know, she has to be a little bit eccentric, but not too eccentric. And yeah. I, I, guess that's, I guess that's, you know, I guess that's just true of almost any characters. You know, great characters are, are eccentric. And so you have to find how to toe that line. But Lucy Mon Montgomery does a good job of it. Mm-hmm. Heidi, now that you've read it so many times, do you ever feel like in certain moments she has you know, gone off the reservation, so to speak, or gone too far with, with the characterization of Anne? No, I really don't ever think that. Because, so do you know that Rilke quote that's pretty famous, that uh, something like feel beauty and terror, um, like no feeling is final. Like that's Anne, right? Mm-hmm. She just feels every she's fully present in every moment of her life whether it's for grief or for joy or for boredom or and and because she's a child in this book she hasn't quite yet learned that no feeling is final so she makes big dramatic decisions like i'm never going back to school gilbert has hurt my feelings excruciatingly diana like everything's she assumes it's final and she acts on it in like a very endearing and charming way because frankly at age 11 not much is at stake and that's part of the whole experience of growing up we call that you know, the coming of age story, but so, so many coming of age stories explore what is it like to put a child like that into a situation in which the stakes are actually really high. And 
and, you know, like a war situation or the inner city or something in which that child with that full, fully present emotional experience is placed in a situation that they can't take back, but not in Anne. I, I, and I like that about Anne because that's actually most of our lives. If we look back on being 11 and, you know, the, I, I remember the boy I was so in love with in fifth grade, he dumped me for Jenny Wilson. What? And I thought I was going to like, I know, I know she had blonde hair and she had LA gear shoes. And I was like, devastated i really thought i was never going to be okay but that's all she had that's what that's what he didn't understand is that all that's all she had (laughs) i used to do the states and capitals together his and we were the only ones in the whole class who knew all the states and capitals because i was because you had a real connection that's right and she (laughs) was divinely beautiful so i thought that my life was over and that's part of kind of this charming, endearing, intense experience of childhood. And I, I really love that in Anne of Green Gables, the stakes are not that high. They're just real life. They're, it's, it's her being mad at Gilbert and, and thinking that's going to last forever. And we all recognize that because we remember that. And, and, but she still has some growing to do and we know that about her. So I, I like that it's just an ordinary life. Again, I keep saying it and she is experiencing this growing up and we get to enter into it without having to be afraid that's going to traumatize us <laughs> because yeah. it's just an ordinary life. Yeah, it's like we get to go on a, on a walk through the park rather than we have to hide behind like you know, broken rubble of a demilitarized zone, which is like the stuff of also really great fiction and and spy novels. And we read those books and we love those books. But this book is so felicitous. And yeah, it's a walk in the park. It's yeah. just a walk in the park. But the thing is, like, I don't exactly want to take issue with what you're saying about stakes, Heidi, but to a certain degree, like one of the things that makes it human is that the stakes are individual. So it's true yeah, that it's, true. it's not like we're not in, you know, it's not the third man and to, to use Tim's, to, to use Tim's references. Uh, although I don't know if you're referencing that specific, but we're not, it's not the rebels of Vienna after world war two. And there's uh, some kind of international espionage going on. And it's not, you know, the North and the South during the civil war or something like that. But the, the stakes are big for her, like for Anne herself, like especially at the beginning where she's going to live and who's going to take care of her. Although she wouldn't quite put it that simply are really enormous stakes for her heart and for her security and for her future. And so one of the things that kind of hovers over the book is the stakes that she is going to be just, too crazy for anybody to want to keep her around. And she, and it seems mm-hmm. like that's the sort of sad, um, the sad, tragic, even sort of thing that's underscoring the way she thinks about the world, that she knows who she is, but also knows that she can be, that, that she can be hard for people to put up with. And so when Marilla, when we as readers see that Marilla and Matthew have real affection for her and really value her sort of eccentricities, then that becomes really meaningful for us as readers because we know that Anne feels like people think she's too eccentric and, and not unlovable, but difficult to difficult to have around. So it's it's not that there's no stakes. It's just that the stakes are so unique and specific to Anne that it makes it so easy for us as humans, as, as, as people who just regular people who are reading it to be able to identify with them. Whereas it's, it's exciting to read the spy who came in from the cold. We can't always identify with the specific problems or the specific sort of mental hurdles that someone like Alec Lemus needs to go through in the spy who came in from the cold. But we, but the, the very specific human problems that are going on in this book are much more easy for us to understand because they're the sort of stakes that we sort of live through every day, even if we're not orphans or even if we're not adopting an orphan. David, are you saying that, um, the circumstances that, for example, Alec Lemus is in, those circumstances kind of transcend him. He's in the Cold War, and everybody, like it or not, is in the Cold War. Whereas Anne's circumstances, she's she's the only orphan in this story. She's the only one who's kind of like 
being admitted or potentially not admitted to a new home. That's what you mean by like individual stakes. Is that right? Yeah. yeah and I think that what we get is like Avonlea and Green Gables is a sort of Edenic concept in this story. And so she's the sort of outsider that comes into Eden and desperately wants to be there and has to find her place in it and has to be accepted in it and has, and like yeah. has this sort of constant fear of being rejected from it. And I think that that's, just, that's one of the sorts of things that makes this book uh, more powerful than just, you know, sort of an episodic, a pleasant episodic tale that, that there is that sort of, she has this fear of being rejected from Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't say it in like forever as we're going to find out, especially in like, like life comes to Avonlea too, but to Green Gables. But that sort of underscores the novel, I think, and is one of the reasons why people keep reading it forever and ever because everybody kind of has the idea. It's like the C.S. Lewis thing, right? When you come up against a group of people who have things that are in common with you and you think, how, how great it is to be part of that group of people. I mean, I know I'm, that's not exactly what he said, but you feel the magic of that, right? And so, mm-hmm. but you also sort of always feel like you don't belong. I feel like, mm. I think a lot of people feel that way. Like your friends are being nice to you to let you be in their friend, to be friends with them. Do you guys ever feel that way? <laughs> or like, yeah. you know, you yeah. don't really belong with a group of people who are really smart or really intelligent or what, you know, really great to be around you just can't or divinely beautiful <laughs> I think, so i think that's a very human um kind of stakes that that it's not stakeless so to speak but it's yeah but it's right. uh, very human it is very human everyday sort of normal stakes if, if you will my friend marianne told me about this uh this research that she's kind of stumbled upon she has gotten very interested in the kind of like neurological what happens neurologically um, in a classroom that kind of enables students to learn and what happens neurologically when a student does learn. But one of the things that she mentions that really stuck with me was that when there's a part of our mind that is kind of on alert constantly until we know where we stand in this sort of hierarchy of the classroom, of our friend group, uh, mm-hmm. of our family, that until that feels somewhat secure, and maybe we, you know we feel like we're at the top, we're in the middle, we're at the bottom, um, but until we kind of know where we are, there's a part of our brain that's kind of preoccupied, probing, trying to pick up the social clues for where we stand. And so I think it's a very, very human uh, it, not just a human predicament. It's just kind of a constant state of being when <laughs> we're in circumstances that are insecure. It's like low gear fear. Yeah, that's a perfect way of describing it. It's low gear fear. Yeah. I, well, it's funny because... Go ahead, Heidi. Go ahead. Um, well, I was thinking about Marilla and how she's afraid that Anne isn't going to fit in at school because Anne is odd, but she does. And that's I, this is the first kind of clue that we get in this section of one of the main themes of the entire series, which is Anne has a gift for friendship. She is Mm. and like, she's relationally a kind of like, I don't, this is too clinical of a word, but she's like a genius for relationships. Mm. And, and even though Mm. she's odd, even though she talks too much, even though she it kind of dwells in the veil between heaven and earth and has all these uh, transcendent kind of longings for eternity that the, the other kids don't that, or at least haven't recognized yet or are not in touch with yet, which is more, I, I think what, Anne. I think that that genius for Anne, given my lifetime of contemplation on the subject is that she has <laughs> this ability to invite people there with her. And Mm. while at the same time, as Tim's pointing out, like completely integrate herself also into the existing social order. So like, she's like talking in slang already and saying Tilly Bolter is dead gone on Charlie Sloan. Like, and so there's, you know, I don't, I I don't (laughs) want my name written up on a take notice. It's not that she's sitting in the corner thinking about God and eternity and not fitting in. She's, completely integrated into the existing 
social order of the school. She knows she just kind of goes in there and has an opinion about things and, and learns Mm. the language, but at the same time has this winsome and compelling delight that's beyond what they are aware of. And they want to be there with her. And that's, I think the thing about Anne that's so compelling to us. And, and so I, I like love that about her and that Marilla was so worried that she wasn't going to fit in and everyone was going to reject her, but she doesn't, she just goes in and she has this ability to connect with people and to be a friend. Mm. Mm. That's really good. And so she's able to, to bring her friends along into her sort of winsome world. Yeah. Without making them. Yes. And you see this in, in the later books, you know, she's let's go on a hike today, Diana. And they, you know, when they're older and they go out into the woods and, and Anne is pointing to a tree covered in moss and saying, look at that poem. And Diana's like, that's not a poem. It's a tree covered in moss. And Anne's like, no, it's a poem. And then there's this brilliant and delightful comparison of the natural world to the to the ability of humans to create something out of it, which is quite profound. But it's there's also this, it's that to me is is what Anne does for everybody. It's like, look at that tree, it's really a poem. And and that she has from the very beginning, but she's she's not aware of it. She doesn't know the gift that she has. She's just trying to fit in, to your point, Tim. And and so she starts talking about her name being written up on take notice boards and it's adorable and endearing to us. But at the same time, she doesn't lose that kind of uh, invitation to the veil between heaven and earth. Mm. Mm. So let me ask you about the later books for people who haven't read them. Um, like Tim and Tim and I, <laughs> yeah. um, does the writing get you know, say like in Harry Potter style, does it get, get better? Um, well, I don't even mean get better. I actually think the writing is really delightful on this, but like, uh-huh. does it get more adult, more complex or like as she gets older or how does, how do the books evolve and change? It stays other the than same. Just older? It, it really, the writing in the, it, it does stay the same. It doesn't get darker. I mean, that she, she lives and lives just a very beautiful, fully, engaged womanly kind of life and she has many children and so there's she doesn't go through some kind of major trauma until her children have to go off to world war one um and fight in the war and even then it's very ordinary in the sense of um there's there's more of a contemplation of her experience with it, not a focus on the grisly details of war. And here's, here's the thing that's interesting. And I don't want to derail the conversation from this book, but it's a Rilla of Ingleside, which is the final book. And it's the one about world war one. That's how I know everything I know about world war one. I know a lot about world war one because she goes through it chronologically. And I read it many, many times. It's one of my favorite ones in the series, but she, I didn't know until I was an adult, like a grown, I think I was in my thirties before I knew what a, I, before I knew that world war one was actually just like this explosion in the modern world and a different kind of war from any other, because mm. the way Montgomery writes about world war one is very patriotic mm. and very romantic, capital R romantic. So I didn't know anything about the ideological impact of the war because the way Montgomery saw the war was very, according to the romantic ideal, like she, she induced her characters in many of them and sons and her friend's sons with this desire to protect their land and they maintain their virtue throughout the whole thing. And they, you know, they're spearing rats in the trenches and eating them and singing patriotic songs. And, and of course that's again, completely unrealistic the same way it is for a traumatized child to have no attachment disorder and come into this family. And, you know, like, but she's not, trying to write realism, she's saying it's actually better to see the world through an idealistic cast. And if you were to see the Mm. world through your ideals, this is one way you can do that. Mm. And I Mm. like that. I think it's awesome. I was just going to raise that 
question. We read kind of a mix of books that we would call maybe kind of like idealistic and other books that we might, you know, rank as like realistic. If that's, if those are kind of the two realms, idealism and realism, I think I would put Catcher in the Rye. Let's do it. Yeah. I would put Catcher in the Rye on the realism category and I would put Anne of Green Gables in the idealism category. And I think over and over is somebody who attempts to write literature, which one, I don't know how to say it. You want to convey something. I mean, I think every author has some, whether she wants to admit it or not, has some kind of goal for their audience. You're writing for a reason. Like Tennessee Williams wanted to make the world a nicer place that he like had a stated goal. Um, and I, and I had this little debate with myself, like which one is, is there a superior path? Is realism the path? Is idealism the path? You, I could, don't, go, I don't know the answer. you could just go uh, magical realism. <laughs> and can I hit both? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> both? Fine line to walk there though. So good luck with that. Or... You could write Anna Karenina. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. So talk about fine lines. Um, hey, I want to shift gears a little bit because, I, um, because I'd like to focus on a couple passages. And uh, I was, I'd like to talk some more about this point of view concept because I think this is a section that does a really good job of, of, with point of view. Do, you, do either of you have a passage uh, that either that for Matthew or Anne or or I guess Marilla or somebody that, that for you is really um, characteristic of, of, of Lucy Maud Montgomery really having a grasp of what's going on inside a character's uh, heart, well, shall we say, or just, you know, in terms of the, the perspective and point of view of that character. I mean, probably, but I'm a little on the spot. Do you, 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 you have one right at the ready, don't you? Well, I have a passage that I hadn't been thinking about that, but I think it would be interesting to talk about from that perspective. Yes. Um, it's, uh, it's in chapter 13. So it's the first chapter we were reading and it's when, um, uh, Anna's talking about, um, well, Marilla says to get out of her patchwork and have her square done before tea time. And then Anne goes on this long monologue, which I think is amazing. And, um, to me really captures the balance that Maud Montgomery has to pull off in this book. Um, it's basically one long paragraph, it says it starts with I do not like patchwork. Do you guys see that? Yes. Chapter thirteen. I guess I'll go ahead and read this one, and then I give you guys a chance to if you want to look for something or come up with some comments or whatever you can. But if you want to look for a passage while I'm reading it, then then this gives you uh, three or four minutes to do that. Um, and I'll try to read it in my best how I imagine her getting more and more breathless as she goes. <laughs> She's just talking forever. Um, so um, it goes. I do, well, Marilla says, now get out your patchwork and have your square done before tea time. I do not like patchwork, said Anne dolefully, hunting out her work basket and sitting down before a little heap of red and white diamonds with a sigh. I think some kinds of sewing would be nice, but there's no scope for imagination in patchwork. It's just one little seam after another, and you never seem to be getting anywhere. But of course, I'd rather be Anne of Green Gables sewing patchwork than, any, than Anne of any other place with nothing to do but play. I wish time went as quick sewing patches as it does when I'm playing with Diana, though. Oh, we do have such elegant times, Marilla. I have to furnish most of the imagination, but I'm well able to do that. Diana is simply perfect in every other way. You know that little piece of land across the brook that runs up between our farm and Mr. Barry's? It belongs to Mr. William Bell, and right in the corner there's a little ring of white birch trees, the most romantic spot, Marilla. Diana and I have our playhouse there. We call it Idlewild. Isn't that a poetical name? I assure you it took me some time to think it out. I stayed awake nearly a whole night before I invented it. Then, just as I was dropping off to sleep, it came like an inspiration. Diana was enraptured when she heard it. We've got our house fixed up elegantly. You must come and see it, Marilla, won't you? We have great big stones, all covered with moss, for seats and boards from tree to tree for shelves, and we have all our dishes on them. Of course, they're all broken, but it's the easiest thing in the world to imagine that they are whole. There's a piece of place. There's a piece of a plate with a spray of red and yellow ivy on it that is especially beautiful. We keep it in the parlor, and we have the fairy glass there too. The fairy glass is as lovely as a dream. Diana found it out in the woods behind their chicken house. It's all full of rainbows, just little young rainbows that haven't grown big yet. And Diana's mother told her it was broken off a hanging lamp they once had. But it's nicer to imagine the fairies lost it one night when they had a ball, so we call it the fairy glass. Matthew's going to make us a table. Oh, we, have, we have named the little round pool over in Mr. Barry's field, Willowmere. 
I got that name out of a book Diana lent me. That was a thrilling book, Marilyn. The heroine had five lovers. I'd be satisfied with one, wouldn't you? She was very handsome and she went through great tribulations. She could faint as easy as anything. I'd love to be able to faint, wouldn't you, Marilla? It's so romantic, but I'm really very healthy for all I'm so thin. I believe I'm getting fatter though. Don't you think I am? I look at my elbows every morning when I get up to see if any dimples are coming. Diana is having a new dress made with elbow sleeves. She's going to wear it to the picnic. Oh, I do hope it will be fine next Wednesday. I don't feel that I could endure the disappointment if anything happened to prevent me from getting to the picnic. I suppose I'd live through it, but I'm certain it would be a lifelong sorrow. It wouldn't matter if I got to a hundred picnics in after years. They wouldn't make up for missing this one. They're going to have boats on the Lake of Shining Waters and ice cream, as I told you. I have never tasted ice cream. Diana tried to explain what it was like, but I guess ice cream is one of those things that are beyond imagination. And then Marilla says, Anne, you have talked even on for 10 minutes by the clock. Now, just for curiosity's sake, see if you can hold your tongue for the same length of time. <laughs> <laughs> that is a lovely section. I just imagine, well, I have a child that's not unlike this <laughs> uh, who, could, who could pull off pretty much that exact same thing, although he would not be talking about um, the same sorts of things. He'd probably be telling me about all the creatures he invented in his notebook and all his um, names for all the characters and all the things that I have no idea what he's talking about. But I love the, the way it just kind of keeps going and going and going and mm-hmm, you see her getting mm-hmm. out of breath and then every now and then the sentence will get a little shorter and she'll shift gears. And that's where I was talking about, like there's this sense of, it could have been too much, you know, and you can't, the passage can't go too long, but it also can't go too short. Can't be too short because otherwise it doesn't pull off the same effect. I, I just love how she, she just in this passage, the way she shifts gears and shows Anne's imagination and her, as you said, Heidi, her love for her friends, but also she's got a little bit of pride in herself. You know, all these different elements to her character come out in this one, you know, two page section or whatever. And I just, I just, I just think it's a delightful way of crafting character because it tells us everything we need to know without Lucy Maud Montgomery telling us everything we need to know. Yeah. yeah. I have one. Okay. Let's hear it, Heidi. It's at the end of the chapter on hitting Gilbert in the head with the slate. The perfect, I, She's just so, I love this book so much. Like that, it's just such a good chapter. Um, Okay, so on my book, it's on page 141. Uh, For you, it's going to be the very last uh, page in the chapter, A Tempest in the School Teapot. And it's about her imagining that Diana is getting married. Oh yeah, this is amazing. (laughs) So you should know that and I, I'm willing to let our listeners recognize this because I have done this so many times. I continue to do this. I thought of this last week because I was imagining like what would happen if, if Scott got COVID and like he has like this long issue. I shouldn't laugh. Why am I laughing? I'm 40 years old and I still do this. I was like, I'm going to have to nurse him. He's not going to have a bed. And like, I'm just like imagining this. Give a picture. Are you kind of like, um, with a, with a lace handkerchief mopping his sweaty brow? I still do this like self-indulgent imagination thing about sad things and happy things and all kinds of things. I have just learned to hold it inside and look like a mature human person. (laughs) Um, all right. So. Functioning. Yes. It's about Diana. Sobbed and luxuriously. What a perfect adverb, by the way. Yeah. I know exactly what Sobbing. she means. Yes. A luxurious yes. sob. Yes. I love Diana so, Marilla. I cannot ever live without her, but I know very well when we grow up that Diana will get married and go away and leave me. Oh, what shall I do? I hate her husband. I just hate him furiously. I've been imagining (laughs) it all out, the wedding and everything. Diana dressed in snowy garments with a veil, looking as beautiful and regal as a queen. And me, the bridesmaid, with a lovely dress too and puffed sleeves. (laughs) But with a breaking heart (laughs) hid beneath my smiling face and then bidding Diana goodbye. And here Anne broke down entirely <laughs> and wept with increasing bitterness. Okay, there's so many things I love about this. You have to finish this though. Okay. It's so good. Okay. Marilla turned quickly away to hide her twitching face, but it was no use. She collapsed on the nearest chair and burst into such a hearty and unusual peal of laughter that Matthew, crossing the yard outside, halted in amazement. When had he heard Marilla <laughs> laugh like that before? 
Well, Anne Shirley, said Marilla as soon as she could speak, if you must borrow trouble, for pity's sake, borrow it hand to your home. I should think you had an imagination, sure enough. <laughs> I love all that. Even the characterization of Marilla and Matthew there, just in that little... Oh my gosh. That little- yeah. When my college boyfriend broke up with me, I remember imagining myself like dying of cancer and him visiting me in my bedside and like regretting what he had done. And like, <laughs> I, like I, but my favorite little detail of this is that she knows what her bridesmaid's dress looks like. It has puff sleeves. Uh-huh. Like, oh. and, that's, and it is, it's just this self-indulgent, like emotions are entertaining and... That's, but it, it does have this, this endearing innocence to it, but it's, it's hysterical and she's afraid she's well, taking what she's legitimately afraid of and processing it in a way. I think this is so human. This is, I think what we should do, right? Like, and that's so anyway, I just love every, and it's so characteristic of her. It shows her loyalty and her love and her deep commitment to relationships, her vanity with her imagination of the pub sleeves, um, and also her her fears, her legitimate real fears. And then Marilla's great, perfect response, which is, I mean, she's she's standing in for the reader here. We are doing the yep. same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The the fear of rejection is is, you know, underneath the surface of all of these scenes like this though. And that, you know, that's, I think one of the things that makes it like almost a century later, what I guess maybe, yeah. What was this written? Yeah. A century ago. So, you know, all these years later is when we don't, well, you know, you don't wear dresses with puff sleeves, Heidi and, you know, I would if they were in style, oh, though. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> we don't drink raspberry. Yeah, the styles change. Right. We don't drink raspberry cordial. We don't drink currant wine. Some of the listeners might. But, um, you know, these all these things have changed, and yet the story is so meaningful because of the fact that, you know, in her, within her imaginings are these very, you know, universal things that we all deal with, these universal fears of being rejected. And she just plays it out. Her imagination just plays it out within the context of the world that she knows. But that world can become, you know, we can, we can be entered, enter into that world because we also understand that, you know, even if we don't express that, we kind of understand that she's dealing with fears that we also have, you know, that is her way of doing that. And so we're going along for that coping ride so to speak although i don't want to say that she's just coping i don't i don't want to make that reading of it but you know what i'm you know what i'm saying these are universal things universal fears that we can tap into even though we don't i definitely don't wear puff sleeves personally but oh you would look ravishing in puff sleeves (laughs) i've often thought that i wish david had more of a wardrobe of puff sleeve something to think about if the circe conference does go forward something to think about david Puff sleeves, maybe for the accessory. But, but yeah. is, are men's puff sleeves kind of like a tunic during Shakespearean's time? Shakespeare's time. I think, I think I so. So I'm thinking for you, dark vest. Yeah, yes, I imagine it. As oh, like, go ahead. I imagine this as like a, a, a pirate kind of outfit, like swashbuckling. So you've got like pantaloons, yeah. and big like big white with more billowing sleeves, and I mean definitely a cutlass and a hat with a big feather and a cloak. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Gold hoop earrings. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I took it too far. We were just coasting along. I painted a, por- a perfect picture, and then I just took it a step too far. <laughs> Big hoop gold earrings. Made from smelted golden booty. <laughs> so many thoughts. Right now. Yeah. Okay. Yes. My section is from chapter... 16. It's the apology and to Mrs. Barry. Presently, Anne stepped out bareheaded into the chill autumn dusk. Very determinedly and steadily, she took her way down through the sear clover field, over the log bridge, and up through the spruce grove, lightened by a pale little moon hanging low over the western woods. Mrs. Barry coming to the door in answer to a timid knock, found a white-lipped, eager-eyed suppliant on the doorstep. Her face hardened. 
Mrs. Barry was a, wong, a woman of strong prejudices and dislikes, and her anger was of the cold, sullen sort, which is always the hardest to overcome. To do her justice, she really believed that Anne had made Diana drink of the sh- drink, excuse me, drunk out of sheer malice, prepense. And she was honestly anxious to preserve her little girl from the contamination of further intimacy with such a child. What do you want? She said stiffly. Anne clasped her hands. Oh, Mrs. Barry, please forgive me. I did not mean to intoxicate Diana. How could I? Just imagine if you were a poor little orphan orphan girl that kind people had adopted and you had just one bosom friend in all the world. Do you think you would intoxicate her on purpose? I thought it was only raspberry cordial. I was firmly convinced it was raspberry cordial. Oh, please don't say that you won't let Diana play with me anymore. If you do, you will cover my life with a dark cloud of woe. (laughs) Poor Anne. Her life will be covered with a dark cloud of woe. It will. I love that chapter 17, the next chapter is called A New Interest in Life. (laughs) (laughs) After this episode of Diana. That's right. Every feeling is final. She needs a new interest. <laughs> One of the great scenes in the miniseries, by the way, is the uh, is Anne getting uh, Diana getting drunk. It's great. It's oh, is it really? Yeah, yeah. Highly recommend you watch this, Tim. You'll enjoy it. I'm going to. When I finish the book, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm gonna watch it. <laughs> <laughs> and Anne of Avonlea too, right? Yeah, cause she, yeah, because she goes off to teach and all that. Mm-hmm. Well. <sighs> We should probably talk a little bit about Gilbert Blythe, because Gilbert Blythe obviously becomes a whole thing. He's a whole, he's a whole, uh, a whole important part of this book. Um, and that's chap- it's chapter fifteen where he, he she smashes the slate over his head, right? Uh huh. Heidi, yes. When you were reading this as a girl, how did you feel about Gilbert Blythe? Well, I was um, very sympathetic to Gilbert. But I didn't blame Anne for what she did. So, um, but man, I love this scene. It's just, it's just so great. Yeah, it's a classic. Carrots, carrots. So Tim, I got to ask you, even though you haven't read this book, were you familiar with the concept of this scene or like, had you? Yeah, it's funny because I remember my sister watching the miniseries and I somehow, this scene like there's a sliver of this scene in my mind yeah so i wonder if i did see you know like maybe this episode yeah i mean it's one of those it's one of those classic scenes i think it's it's probably the scene that lingers in the cultural consciousness of for you know from this book would would you say that's true heidi i do think that's true i also think the lily maid scene is a classic in the movie as well and we haven't read that one but this one is I mean, it's it's just the most perfect beginning to a lifelong love story ever in, I think, children's literature. Like it's yeah. just, it, yeah. I mean, if, if it was just any boy, it would be funny. Like if it was just a boy in her class, it would yeah. be funny uh, and it would be a good scene. Uh, but I, you, I feel like you learn what I love about this scene is it is funny. It tells you a lot about Anne, but it also tells you so much about Gilbert without him uttering any word other than carrots. Like the way he handles this, mm-hmm. the way that he pursues her, the way he notices her, um, the way he gives responds. a little candy heart when he grinds up. Yes, the way he responds to her anger and just everything about it is... I think it tells you just as much about him as it does about Anne, probably even more. Because we already knew Anne had a temper. We already knew she overreacts. We already know she's vain. We know her at this point in the story. But Gilbert is just a brand new character in the in a third of the way through the book, which is always a little bit of a risk for a main character to introduce him so late. Um, so, yeah. But she does it. I, just the craft of this is, I think, perfect. Yeah. I, I This is the best kind of love story in literature, in my opinion. There's plenty of Romeo and Juliet stories where people sort of are just 
thrown in sort of this uh, into the throes of their romance and there's some obstacle trying to keeping them and but they're like unified together against that obstacle but way more interesting is the sort of love story where it's born out of some sort of conflict between them and then one or the other is they're kind of there's a sort of pursuit there i think that's way more interesting um in terms of a literary love story so i think that uh I, this is another way i think the movie did a really good job i, I think that the sort of Mary war to borrow the Beatrice and Benedict idea, mm-hmm. the Mary war betwixt them, I think is one of the great parts about this book. So Tim, buckle up. You're going to have a lot, you're gonna ready. Have lots of emotions over the rest of this book. <laughs> okay. I'm buckled in. I'm ready. It's Benedict and Beatrice. It's not Orlando and Rosalind. No, it's, <laughs> it is worthy, worthy beginning as opponents, but okay. I have do have one more thing to say about Gilbert. The, yeah. Another thing that I love about the about this is that the where the merry war betwixt them is entirely one sided. Like, and I I love that. Anne is Anne. I mean, Anne is anti Gilbert, and Gilbert is for Anne. Like he is he he was trying to win her back, as you pointed out. The pursuit. Um, yeah, and. But it's not, it, it is the softening and the formation of both of them in very different ways that are consistent with both of their characters. Mm. Go Say more about that. that. Or at least give us a preview of that, what you mean. Sure. So the, the thing about Gilbert, that he notices there's something special about Anne from the very beginning and he just wants to get her attention. And he, he's curious about her and he's drawn to her. And he <laughs> he triggers her weaknesses, right? And in this particular case, he did something wrong, which is good. That's a good thing. It's I, I think it works for the story. But he 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 maintains that actually for the rest of his life, maintains that exact same feeling about Anne that he has at the very beginning, and that he just, he sees her and he's interested in her. He's curious about her. He wants to know her. And, and that doesn't change, no matter how mad she gets at him. Mm-hmm. And Anne is riding the emotional roller coaster, indulging herself. Uh, and, um, and then as the book goes on, their relationship changes, even though she still rejects him firmly. Um, but it kind of finds its rhythm. And and that mm. is, um, and it becomes part of the fabric of both of their lives. For her, it's a, it's a war. She's resentful and unkind. For him, he just is like the full of the same kind of wonder and desire to get to know her and to win her over. Like he never enters the oh. war with anything other than good nature. He's just like, yeah, I want to be, I want to get better grades than her. I want to, I want to like, we're both the smartest kids in the class and I want to do better than her because she's mad at me. But he, he never <laughs> is mad at her. Yeah. So he's well, exactly I, I, the, the same. Way, Go ahead. Well, the, the way that Maude Montgomery introduces him is really good too, because you have, there's like this sort of, uh, the, the girls are all walking to school and they're talking about how handsome and mysterious he is and all that. And there's this sort of like white whale aspect to him. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, um, and then when they get to the school and confides to Diana, I think your Gilbert Blythe is handsome. I think he's very bold. He doesn't good manners to wink at a strange girl. So he's trying to get her attention and she does acknowledge like Lucy Maud Montgomery, makes sure that Anne acknowledges that he's good looking mm-hmm. like that, that, that she's attracting him or whatever, like that, that, that all the rumors are true. Um, and then it, you get into this this long paragraph where Gilbert's trying to get her attention, and she's it says that she uh, um, Anne was totally oblivious not only of the very existence of Gilbert Blythe but of every other scholar in Avonlea School and of Avonlea School itself, with her chin propped on her hands and her eyes fixed on the blue glimpse of the lake of shining waters that the west window afforded. She was far away in a gorgeous dreamland, hearing and seeing nothing save her own wonderful visions. And it says Gilbert Blythe wasn't used to putting himself out to make a girl look at him and meeting with failure. She should look at him, that red-haired Shirley girl with the little pointed <laughs> chin and the big eyes that were like the eyes of any other girl in Avonlea school. So there's like a great shift in his perspective, but it also shows, as you're saying, what he notices about her, but also that like he's going to always have to compete with her imagination. Yeah. Like that's all, he, she's always going to kind of 
off be in that be off in that world and so that's kind of a preview of a sense of what <laughs> what being in a relationship or even a friendship with Anne like it would be like right yep and they maintain that their entire life Anne watching excuse me Gilbert watching Anne like experience her own dream world and her own imaginative delight and her own connection with the world beyond and that is the nature of their relationship forever that's what he falls in love with about her and from the very beginning he just doesn't know it at this point he's just a little bit cocky um yeah at this point he's just a little cocky he's a little um arrogant he's not in love with her yet he just wants her attention and he's curious about her and he's smart and handsome and used to girls paying attention to him. And that I think is consistent with both for both of them. I, I just think Lucy Montgomery draws the characterization of this so much so well that it works. It's not just Anne being um, like, she could have simplified this to the point of like Anne being too virtuous to want a boy's attention, but we know that's not true about Anne. She wants to be pretty. She wants, she just, so anyway, yeah. I, I just, I like the way that she draws this, um, these characters so finely, like with like fine detail so much so that they're kind of Mary war, um, which on Anne's part is vindictive and on Gilbert's part is bewildered, um, <laughs> kind of through, she makes it work in this particular chapter so well that it does work to carry it through and uh, for a while. Until it mm-hmm. ends. So, Tim, spoiler alerts that we just all the spoiler alerts that we just gave you in case you didn't know how this how that relationship. I'm expunging them. I'm expunging them from my memory. <laughs> but of course, you probably already knew that going into it. I suspected. I suspected. <laughs> what are your? Uh, we were. We've been talking about it as people who have read the story and know the story. But what are? What's your? What are your thoughts on the uh, the appearance of Gilbert Blythe on the scene? I like him. I like that he's a good boy. Like he, uh, he owns what he did to Anne. He doesn't, you know, hide from it. He's, he's got some integrity to him. He's not just a pretty face. You guys, he's not just a pretty Mm -hmm. face. He's a pretty face with integrity. Is what you're saying? He's a pretty face with with integrity, which brings us back to the point that it's better to be, what is it? Angelically good. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah from the what was that like the is it one of the wait I'm, I'm trying to make a reference to the, the three yeah, options yeah, at the beginning of, which would you rather be if you have a choice divinely beautiful yeah divinely clever or angelically good mm-hmm. yeah turns out our Gilbert <laughs> so has all of them I guess <laughs> yeah in your uh, in your scenario in fifth grade was the boy which was he of these three Oh, Brandon. Because you said the Brandon, girl, Brandon. the blonde girl was divinely beautiful. Oh, yes. Um, well, I mean, in my memory, he is a very great villain. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was a nice boy. <laughs> but I I liked him because he knew all this. He was the only other kid in the class who knew all the states and capitals. And he, I was the new girl in class, like Anne. And he told his friend Colin that he thought I was pretty and that he liked that I knew all the states and capitals. And so then he... We went, we went. Oh, you bonded over your knowledge of geography. That's right. And we used to quiz each other on the states and capitals. And I could, I, I would always forget Vermont and he would whisper the answer to me. Um, oh my gosh. That is so romantic. I know, it was a sweet, it was a sweet time until Jenny. Yeah, Wilson I, came around. Go ahead and this episode now. I don't know. About, I don't know about this, this kind of <laughs> romantic gobble. gobbledygook. So, and then. <laughs> And then Jenny Wilson came along and she had blonde hair and LA gear shoes. And, and she knew Vermont. No, she didn't know Vermont. That no, was, she didn't. This, David, this she my, didn't know Vermont. That's what hurt so this bad. This is my oh. lifelong desire to be divinely beautiful over dazzlingly clever. That's, this is the, when the iron entered my soul. And I learned <laughs> you can know all of the states and capitals and the boy will still dump you for Jenny Wilson. That's the thing that I said, I say dump on purpose because I remember, I remember he wrote me a note that was like, I'm dumping you. <laughs> it was really sad. Uh-uh. It was really sad. What a, what a violent word. Why not? Like, 
you know, it's not you. It's we are me. shifting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not something like that? Um, yeah. I am dumping you. Graders are. Do you do you consent? Cruel. Yes, no, maybe. Yep. No, I do not consent. <laughs> you mean not acknowledge? Dumping. Yep. Um, it was very. It was very sad. And it did. It did feel like. I mean, I can laugh about it now, but at the time it was very real. And and I remember just like knowing how Anne felt about everything, right? Like, and um, so these, I mean, this book and this particular chapter with her like violent response to to Gilbert and how she's can never go back to school again because she had to sit with a boy and she had, and he didn't spell, Mr. Phillips didn't spell her name with an E when he wrote it on the slate. And Shirley has yeah, a very a bad insult. temper. Um, that's, I mean, it is, it is funny, but it's, it's also just so real because those walls of a school of a classroom are a child's entire world. So the feelings are very big. And I think one thing Lucy Maud Montgomery understands is that the feel it, ch- children are just as human as adults. And so it may feel like, as we talked about earlier, the stakes are lower, but to your point that you made, David, they're not low, they're not low to a child. They feel they are formative. Yeah. Like it was formative yeah. to me that, that this boy from fifth grade picked the pretty girl like that meant something to me that like followed me in my life. And well, and that's what she's, I think that's what Lucy Montgomery is kind of trying to get at here that these things we can laugh at them and that's, it's good. Like we don't have to take it seriously. We're not, she's not writing this for us to take it seriously, but we are in Anne's world and we, we recognize and recollect that and remember that as we're reading it. Because we've all been through something like that. Yeah. Well, and it strikes me that there is like, as you said, those are formative feelings and emotions and things like that. And, and that's why it's so important why the, the stakes are there because how you process those things as a child does become formative like right. how, the context yeah. in which you have to process all the things that you're feeling and the answers that you're given for the things that you're feeling and people that are there to help you understand why you're feeling things like all those things do have stakes because they determine the person you become and that's kind of why it matters whether Anne gets rejected from Avonlea and Green Gables or not right know? Right. Well, and you brought up the mini series. One thing they do in the mini series that I mean, I love that mini series. I've seen it a hundred times. Um, but one thing they do that I know why they did it because you have to make a movie work. I get that. But one thing they do in the move in the mini series that's different from the book is they is that Marilla puts Anne on a trial period says that you you can stay at Green Gables for a while and then I'll decide whether or not I'm going to keep you. And they mm. keep that and, and then they make it so that Anne um, steals the brooch during the trial period and Marilla threatens to send her away because of it oh. and tells her the trial didn't work because you're a thief and a liar. Um, yeah, that's the stakes. Yes. Yeah, so they've raised the stakes, which you kind of have to do in a, in a movie version or else it becomes, as you pointed out, David, kind of just like episodic chunks that uh it's hard to find a unifying thread so i know why they change books and um add things to them to make them into a better film like i know why they do that but it always made me a little sad because i think one of the great things about this book is that Anne is accepted wholeheartedly into the community from the beginning and it begins to mm. do its work on her and she begins to do its work on on the community right from the very beginning. And so there is this sense of safety that she carries with her into thunking Gilbert over the head with the, uh, with the slate. Um, like she's able to just kind of abandon herself and give herself into this safe community from the very beginning, which becomes this support for the reader and for Anne. Like we're never wondering, is Anne going to be sent back to the orphanage? Um, and so that we can kind of just right. let her have these safe experiences throughout the whole book. Yeah. 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 That's, that's an interesting point. I, I never thought about that before, but it, but it makes sense. Like 
in both cases, it makes sense given the medium. Mm-hmm. Right. Given the media, medium. All right. Well, let's have some final thoughts here to wrap this up. Tim, fi- well, uh, Tim, Heidi, who wants to go first? Tim will go first. I just talked a lot. Like Anne. <laughs> I'm curious to know how the budding, you can't call it a romance between Anne and Gilbert. The, Mary the budding relationship is going to develop. That's what I'm curious about. Like, I don't know if like, if this thing is going to like really um, come to fruition in this book, or is it going to arrive at a subsequent book? I'm curious to know. Do you, what are the odds that you will read Anne of Avonlea next or at some point in the next while? I don't know. You know, it's, it's, we all have our, our book queue is so deep. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking, I don't know what book am I going to, what series of books am I going to bump off for that one? I don't know. So does Q stand for quarantine? <laughs> your Q stands for quarantine. Your quarantine books. <laughs> Not that you're quarantined, but that's a you're in isolation or whatever they call it. I'm in isolation. Not, yeah, I don't want to you know worry people. No, <laughs> no, I'm fine. That's that's not even not a funny joke. I Why did I do that? <laughs> Coronavirus is a real thing, and I'm just like I don't know. I guess you have to laugh a little bit. We're trying to figure. We're trying to figure out how to process things. I yeah. It's easier to laugh at it than look at it. I guess I don't know. Maybe well, that's a good place to end this podcast. Jeez, um, <laughs> we we will talk about. Wait, what's Heidi's final thought? Yeah, what are your final thoughts, Heidi? Oh, I I'm going to pick a final thought. Here it is. Um, we are very yeah, interested. <laughs> we are very interested in the Gilbert and Anne dynamic, rightfully so. Um, but for Anne, the big deal is Diana. Like this is, mm. this is the trauma. She, the, the thing with Gilbert is the thing that happened. She won't go back, but it's not even about Gilbert. It's about being made to sit with a boy and stand up humiliated in front of the class. Um, and she's, that's what is, and, and being called carrots because she's sensitive about her hair. Um, yeah. But for her, the big, big, sad crater in her life right now is the loss of Diana. And that is, that's the thing that she's mostly going to be, you know, processing and and thinking through going forward and feeling so very intensely. Hmm. All right. Well, um, if you want to, uh, feel things intensely as well, make sure to head over to the Facebook page or closereads.substack.com where you can find the, the uh, couples clash bracket and you can vote and you can even vote for uh, Anne Shirley and Gilbert Blythe if you'd like because they made the final eight. So people, people do care a lot about this bracket. So if you want to participate in that, you can head over to one of those two places to, uh, to vote. I think it's, uh, we've got Emma, the, the couple from Emma, um, Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy, no surprise. Um, we've got, I think, Wesley and, and Buttercup from Princess Bride. Uh, I think and Carolyn Ingalls are maybe up against Anne and Gilbert. And then there is Arthur and Guinevere up against, who am I forgetting? Oh, Benedict and Beatrice. So Benedict and Beatrice. So I think those are the, the eight. Um, the eight couples that we have. I think I, think I just listed eight. So if you want to participate in that, head over to one of those two places and vote. Uh, as always, you can join the conversation as well. And uh, anything else you guys want to add? Nope. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Well, next week we will talk about chapters 17 through 21. And then don't forget that over on the, uh, the Patreon page, we are going to be talking about uh, part three of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment coming up uh, here soon as well. And we may uh, or may not, you know, we'll just throw it out there, have a special bonus episode for you um, coming up towards the end of the week. So, or weekend ish. So, you know, just going to throw that little teaser out there. It's not on Common Punishment or Anne of Green Gables, but it might be something that you're interested in. So be on the lookout for, for that. But with that, uh, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week. And in the meantime, happy reading. Happy reading.